Today on the Matt Walsh Show, med students participate in a bizarre incantation ritual where they pledge to reject the gender binary and show respect for primitive medical practices. This is what modern medicine has become. Speaking of modern medicine, Canada has expanded their euthanasia laws so that now physically healthy young people, even minors, can be victims of doctor-assisted suicide. Plus, the unedited portions of Kanye's interview with Tucker Carlson are leaked online. The left is calling it a bombshell scoop. We'll see if they're overreacting again. They are, of course. And even MSNBC is now admitting that John Fetterman is mentally incompetent, but he's not dropping out of the race, of course. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe is a huge, albeit long overdue, step in the right direction. But there's still a long way to go to rid our country of abortion. Many companies are bowing to the woke mob by donating to pro-choice causes and candidates or reimbursing their employees' travel expenses so that if they live and work in a pro-life state, uh, they can travel to a pro-abortion state, get an abortion, be back at work on Monday. But what if I told you that if you're currently on a phone plan with one of the major carriers, you might be supporting these companies and their pro-abortion agendas with your monthly phone bill. Don't let abortionists use your money to fund policies you don't believe in. Switch to Charity Mobile instead. Charity Mobile is a pro-life, pro-family cell phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to the pro-life charity of your choice. You don't have to compromise on values or good phone service. Charity Mobile offers the latest 5G phones, no device or service contracts, great nationwide coverage, and live customer service based right here in the USA. The fight for the right to life continues, and pro-life causes need all the support you can get. This fight is not over. It only continues. And you can help by switching your phone service to Charity Mobile today. Call 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com. Mention offer code Walsh to redeem a free cell phone offer. That's uh, charitymobile.com and mention code Walsh. The University of Minnesota Medical School is prestigious, has a great reputation. Each year is ranked among the best medical schools in the entire country. A man named Dr. Robert Englander is the associate dean for undergraduate medical education at the school, and he is, like the institution he serves, highly regarded, highly respected, um, his resume includes Yale Medical School, Johns Hopkins, Harvard Medical School, a residency at Children's National Medical Center. He's run the Ivy League Medical School gamut. And there was a time when all of that stuff might have meant that the University of Minnesota Medical School and men like Dr. Robert Englitter can be trusted. But those days are long gone. Here's the report from the Tennessee Star. Quote, University of Minnesota Medical School students took an oath to, quote, promote a culture of anti-racism during an August 19th white coat ceremony. White coats, the students said, um, are themselves a symbol of power, prestige, and dominance. Therefore, students will, quote, strive to reclaim their identity as a symbol of responsibility, humility, and loving kindness. Quote, we commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system, the students said. According to a video of the ceremony, Dr. Robert Englander, Associate Dean for Undergraduate Medical Education, led students in reciting the oath, which he described as beautiful. He said the class oath was written by the students in consultation with their faculty advisors. Now, you can't fully appreciate this until you've actually seen the video, which was posted to Twitter by Chris Ruffo, and let's go through it now. Here it is. With gratitude, we, the students of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School Class of 2026, stand here today among our friends, families, peers, mentors, and communities who have supported us in reaching this milestone. 
Our institution is located on Dakota land. Today, many indigenous people throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, call the Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. Well, you're right. This acknowledgement is not enough. Your apology is not complete. I will not believe that the repentance is sincere until Dr. Robert Englander demonstrates it through self-immolation. I mean literal self-immolation, like setting himself on fire, rather than simply immolating his credibility as a medical professional and his dignity as a man. I mean, that much he has done. But I got to see, I gotta see the, the, the full thing. You got to go all the way. So as we heard there, it begins with the classic land acknowledgement where members of modern Western civilization apologize for being members of modern Western civilization. Granted, all people everywhere on earth are living on land that was once occupied and owned by other people. All inhabited regions of the globe, without exception, have been fought over and bled over and for. Um, no other culture, though, apologizes for this fact, just as Native Americans never apologize for their own history of conquest and bloodshed. This is a confrontation that they are never required to have with their own past. Only modern Westerners are stupid enough for this kind of thing. But the greater concern is that, is that this doctor and these medical students are, in creepy unison, declaring the gender binary oppressive. Now, it's theoretically possible that somebody could be a competent medical professional even while suffering from a terminal case of performative white guilt. And that's all the land acknowledgement stuff signifies. But it is impossible that somebody could be a competent medical professional or even a semi-competent one while harboring the delusion that biology is some sort of oppressive patriarchal construct and conspiracy. All of their medical work must, must happen within the context of biological realities. If they don't understand those realities or have pledged to pretend they don't understand them, then they can't be trusted. I mean, I wouldn't even take Tylenol if these lunatics recommended it because they are fatally compromised. And we're not done yet. Let's continue. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening and amplifying voices for positive change. We pledge to honor all indigenous ways of healing that have been historically marginalized by Western medicine. I'm sorry, what? Honor all indigenous ways of healing? All of them? All? Are you sure? All? I mean, most indigenous ways of healing are based in paganism and animism. You know, the belief that all things, including rocks and rivers and plants and all that, have souls and are, in a sense, uh, supernatural. This is the belief system that these ideas are rooted in. Primitive people you know, may have had some useful medical insights about plants and medicinal plants and all that, but they were ignorant of most of the scientific realities that make modern medicine possible. So when you say all... Are we including, for example, the primitive practice of trepanation, which is boring holes in a person's skull to treat spiritual or physical illnesses? That's something that indigenous people in this part of the world did, especially in South America. Um, so are we honoring that? What about bloodletting or topical ointments made out of animal droppings and dead lizards? 
What about ritualistic and medicinal cannibalism? Is Minnesota Medical School going to start teaching those strategies too? In indigenous cultures, most medical issues are treated by shaman, you know, witch doctors, who would get high on hallucinogens and then dance around shaking a magical stick or whatever. Is that the sort of treatment plan I can now expect from doctors who earn degrees from medical from Minnesota Medical School? If I go to the doctor complaining of a of a of a backache, is he going to say, "Okay, hang on a second, and like dose himself with some LSD and start dancing around the room, chanting? Perhaps so, because we wouldn't want to marginalize those medical practices. Continuing on. Knowing that health is intimately connected to our environment, we commit to healing our planet and communities. We vow to embrace our role as community members and strive to embody cultural humility. We promise to continue restoring trust in the medical system and fulfilling our responsibilities as educators and advocates. We commit to collaborating with social, political, and additional systems to advance health equity. Cultural humility, he says. You know, the, the other thing that's annoying about all this is that, is that as always, like, they, they, ne- they never are consistent in the principle. Um, so, so cultural humility, in and of itself, I would, I would agree with. So, and there's not a lot of cultural humility these days, which is why we, we, we spend so much time, um, you know, tearing down statues and monuments and everything and, and talking about the sins of our ancestors and our forefathers um, elevating ourselves above them, you know, engaging in this kind of chronological snobbery, as uh, as I believe C.S. Lewis put it. So, so we're doing that. It's like people like that were that lived before us were a bunch of barbaric scumbags simply because they lived before us, and we're better because we live now. But then, at the exact same time, we're also told that well, we don't want to marginalize indigenous healing methods. So on one hand, there is no cultural humility. And then on the other hand, there's also at the exact same time, this like degrading, debasing of yourself where you're ele- elevating these primitive concepts above you. And, but all this is racially based, of course. That's, that's, that's how we explain the, the patterns. Anyway, this is a relief because uh, they, they did also say there in that last clip that they're restoring trust in the medical system. They're restoring trust. By making me think that I'm probably better off simply dying of any serious disease I contract rather than consulting with one of these lunatics. That's how they restore trust. But as always, you know, though this footage is deeply horrifying, though it may chill you to the bone to see what modern medicine has become, it is good that you see it. I would rather that they utter these incantations in full public view on camera than do it in secret. It allows us to see where we stand and it also helps us to understand that we are dealing not with an ideology or a political system. Um, this is not merely you know, doctors who are partisan or, or have political biases. Those kinds of doctors have always existed, of course. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a religion. It is a religion unlike any other in the history of the world because this religion is centered around the fundamental rejection of truth. Many religions before this have been untrue. Many religions have had false ideas about the world. But even the false and untrue ones have strived for truth. They claim to be true. They saw themselves as an access point for truth, as maybe the only access point for truth. But this modern Western liberal religion simply rejects truth as a category. Now, this is not ignorance. Indigenous cultures, with their often counterproductive medical practices, 
were ignorant through no fault of their own. Um, all ancient people were ignorant. They didn't know very much about how the physical world functions or why. These things had not been explained to them yet. Many cases had not been discovered yet. But the religion of leftism stands in the light of truth. It stands on the shoulders of people who have revealed many important truths to them. And then it chooses falsehood. It chooses ignorance. As an act of will, it chooses untruth. There have been false religions. This, on the other hand, is falsehood as religion. And these cultists, these religious fanatics, are in positions of power and prestige in our culture. They, they run our schools and our government. And now they run the medical field, which is something to keep in mind the next time you have to go to the doctor, at least. Now let's get to our five headlines. For those who've been following the story, Vanderbilt Hospital has agreed to pause all gender transition surgeries on minors. This is a big win. A left-wing institution caving to pressure from the right deserves some recognition, but the fight is far from over. There's still so much we can do to protect our children from this evil leftist indoctrination. And one thing you can do today is write a will. You know, many new parents don't realize how important it is to have a will in place, but the sad truth is that if you were to die tomorrow without a will, the fate of your children would be left up to the state. I don't know about you, but I don't want the state deciding anything for my family. Luckily, my partners over at Epic Will make early estate planning incredibly easy and affordable. They bundle your last will, living will, healthcare power of attorney, HIPAA release, and durable financial power of attorney all together. And you can save 10% at the same time when you use code Walsh. It only costs $119 for a single person to create a will. And when you, when you use promo code Walsh, you'll save 10% as well. So go to epicwill.com, use promo code Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. Okay, we're going to start with something uh, gut-wrenching and stomach-churning. This is an article written by freelance journalist Rupa Subramanya, uh, on, which I think I got that right, on her Substack, And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very important article, by the way, that you should go look up and, uh, and, uh, and well-written. Uh, and it's quite relevant to the topic today, as it documents the medical industry's further plunge into moral madness, and by extension, the West's plunge into moral madness. So assisted suicide is becoming increasingly popular in the West, especially in Canada, and starts in Canada and filters down. That land acknowledgement nonsense grew, uh, became prominent, became popular in Canada, and is filtering down now uh, in, into the United States. Same thing with the expansion of assisted suicide. So popular West, especially in Canada. And in Canada, the laws have been repeatedly adjusted to make more people eligible for this sort of quote-unquote treatment. And it's getting to, getting to the point where in some parts of Canada, assisted suicide, euthanasia, is one of the leading causes of death. That's how common it is. As the author documents in this article, it's become an epidemic. And now it's an epidemic that includes very young people, even kids. So I'm going to read uh, some of this now. On September 7th, Margaret Marcilla called Joshua Tepper, the doctor who planned to kill her son. Marcilla's 46. She lives outside Toronto with her husband and daughter, a nursing student. She had known that her 23-year-old son, Keanu Vafayan, was depressed. He was diabetic, had lost his vision in one eye, and he didn't have a job or girlfriend or much of a future. 
And Marcella asked her daughter to log on to Keanu's account. Keanu had given his sister access so she could help him with his email. He never shared anything with his mother, what he was thinking, where he was going, and Marcella was scared. That was when Marcella learned that Keanu had applied and in late July had been approved for medical assistance in dying, a.k.a. MAID, M-A-I-D, a.k.a. assisted suicide. His death was scheduled for September 22nd. In a September 7th email from Tepper, the doctor, to Keanu and Tekla Hendrickson, the executive director for Maid House, the Toronto facility where Keanu's death would take place, Tepper mapped out the schedule. Here's the email. Hi, he emailed. I'm confirming the following time. Please arrive at 8.30 a.m. I will ask for the nurse at 8.45 a.m. and I will start the procedure at around 9 a.m. Procedure will be completed a few minutes after it starts. Okay, let's pause for a second here to take note of one of the most insidious aspects of assisted suicide. Notice the language that's being used. Procedure, treatment, right? You're going to a facility. There's uh, there's appointments. Someone's emailing you to confirm the appointment. Working out logistics. It sounds like a communication between, uh, you know, that you would have with a dentist or something, an orthodontist. And the effect is that we are sanitizing suicide. We are sanitizing death. We're making it seem like something other than it is. And this doesn't just make suicidal people feel better about their suicides, which would be bad enough. Okay, I don't see any difference between this and it, you see a suicidal person who's, at, who's standing at the, at, the, at the edge of a bridge and about to jump off. And rather than trying to convince him to step back from the edge, you just try to make him feel better about what he's going to do. Oh, go ahead. It'll be fine. It won't hurt that much. Like if someone did that, I mean, if you were to witness a scene like that, someone, a suicidal person standing at the edge of a bridge, someone else shouting to them to make them feel better about it, it'll be painless, I promise. You would, uh, you would think that person's a monster. What kind of person are you? This person needs help. They're going to throw their life away. We, we don't want to see that happen. And yet this is exactly what's happening in, in the case of assisted suicide. And as I'm talking about this, I'm remembering that there have been Criminal cases that I forget the the girl's name, but there was a famous criminal case in this country a few years ago of a of a a girl who encouraged her boyfriend to commit suicide, and he was depressed, and she encouraged it, and she kept telling him that it'll be fine, and he was even in his car about to commit suicide, and she was coaching him through it and saying it'll be painless, it'll be fine, you you know, this is how you make your problems go away. And she was charged with crime for that, and for good reason. Yet this is exactly what is happening with assisted suicide, and it's happening in a medical context. And because the person has a white coat and can call themselves a doctor, suddenly it's it's okay. But it's 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 even it's even worse than that. It's not just making suicidal people feel better about their suicide. It's also um, it's also you know making it seem appealing to people who. Otherwise, wouldn't be suicidal. It encourages suicide, in other words. Quite intentionally, of course. The other thing to keep in mind as we go through this, and and we'll get to this article in in a moment, but it's worth emphasizing that we are way past the point of euthanasia for elderly people who are terminally ill and going to be dead next week anyway. And I think still when you hear about euthanasia, that's what comes to mind. But we are way past that. We're talking about putting down like dogs physically healthy people, young people, people who should have long lives in front of them. We are much further down the slippery slope. It is a, it's a slope that some of us warned would happen if we legalized euthanasia at all. 
Some of this have been warning. Some of us have been warning about this for years. We said if we get if if doctors get into the business of doling out death as a way to to get around a problem that you're having or to deal with a problem that you're having, even if it's a very serious problem, a fatal problem like a terminal illness, once doctors get into the business of that, there is no end. There's no floor. There's no basement. And we warned about that and we were ignored. But here's the thing. We are always right. When we warn about the slippery slope, we are always right. Always. 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 We have never been wrong. We've been right every single time. Maybe at some point people will start listening to us. And you still have these morons who treat the slippery slope. Oh, it's a fallacy. Slippery slope's a fa- oh, it's a fallacy. It's just, it's just that we're, we're right every single time. Continuing along, it says, the procedure entailed administering two drugs, first a coma-inducing agent, then a neuromuscular blocker that would stop Keanu's breathing. He'd be dead in five to ten minutes. Apparently, Keanu wanted to bring a dog with him. In an email to him that same day, Hendrickson said, dogs are welcome in the space as long as there's someone there who will be responsible for them during the time at Maid House. Marcella was terrified. She had tried to do everything for her son, but it had been rough for him. And then it goes into what, you know, what he'd gone through in his life. He'd been through a lot of very difficult things. Uh, he was unhappy, and that's when he decided to reach out um, about being killed. Now, the story doesn't really have an, uh, you know, it there's no ending really to the story, certainly not a happy one. It goes on to say that after the mother's efforts to fight against this, the suicide appointment was, was canceled, but her son is still in despair. He hates his mom now for trying to save him, um, though he, he, does, he, does, he doesn't right now have an active appointment to kill himself. So that's the positive the negative is that, you know, he's far from out of the woods and, and same for her. The struggle goes on. And, and that's how it should be, right? Because we fight for life. We don't give up on it. And when someone's going through a time like this, a very, a very dark time, and you try to help them, it's very likely that they're going to lash out at you. They're going to start blaming you. I mean, you're trying to help them and save them, and, and they're going to take it out on you. That's what her, this guy's mom is dealing with. But you keep fighting for it. Because life is worth fighting for. If it's not, then what's the point of anything? What's the point of it? If everyone's worried about nuclear war, we might as well all just incinerate ourselves with, with, with nukes on purpose and be done with it. If life is not worth fighting for and saving. We can't get to the point where we say, well, this person is depressed and uh, they'll, they'll always be like this. There's no point in him living anymore. Let's put him down like an old golden retriever and move on. No, you keep fighting for life. Uh, and then the, the article goes on to talk about the, the numbers right now and how, in Canada especially, they are rapidly increasing. You know, year over year over year, more and more people uh, falling victim to euthanasia. And the reason why it's increasing is because, well, we live in a culture of death that encourages this kind of thing and encourages despair. And also, at the same time, they are um, relaxing and relaxing and amending the laws to include more and more people. And now, as we said, they, you, know, you could get euthanasia even if you don't have a terminal illness, even if you're young. And now they're even talking about amending the law again so that children without parental consent, so that teenagers, okay, minors, it's, it's uh, what they're calling a mature minor doctrine. Under the mature minor, the so-called mature minor doctrine, um, minors can get euthanasia without parental consent. So they're going to start killing teenagers without parental consent. Full-on moral collapse. I mean, just complete in the West. And this is also the continued, we talk about self-immolation, it's the continued self-immolation 
of medicine, of the medical profession, as it continues to profit off of harm. Many such cases. And it's really the affirm, the so-called affirmative care model brought to its inevitable and violent uh, and, and, and quite grotesque conclusion. We know about the affirmative care model when it comes to gender and someone who's gender confused and in despair because of their gender confusion. Uh, they come in and they have that confusion affirmed. Rather than having reality affirmed, they have their confusion affirmed and then they just fall deeper and deeper into despair. And now the same thing is happening with depression. A depressed and suicidal person comes to the doctor and they have their depression and suicide confirmed and affirmed. Rather than saying, no, you'll get through this. It's not going to be like this your whole life. Your life is still worth living. They're told, yeah, you know what? If you feel like this now, you're never not going to feel like this. And so you might as well kill yourself. What they're being told. It's just so barbaric especially for those of us who are a little bit older and have lived a, a while. And, you know, we know that you can go through times in life, you can go through periods, you can go through very dark periods in life. I mean, many people have. You go through very dark periods. And they, and they can be so dark that you don't see an end to it. You feel lost. You don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You feel like it's going to be like this forever. And, um, and then in, in so many cases, you, you come out of it. And maybe there'll be a time in your life when you go back into it. That, that's part of life. It's, life is hard, it's, and there's suffering involved. But when you're in your lowest moment and you're suffering your most, it, it doesn't mean it's going to be like that forever. That should be the message. That's a message of hope, but it's not what we're getting anymore. All right. Kanye West was trending again, this time uh, because of this article from Vice. It says, Fox News recently aired a two-part interview between Tucker Carlson and Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Motherboard has obtained portions of the interview that were edited out of the final broadcast. These include numerous anti-Semitic statements from Ye, a strange and lengthy digression about fake children he claimed were planted in his house to manipulate his own children, and a statement that he's vaccinated against COVID-19. Carlson used the interview, which was presented as a piece of landmark television, to hit on a few of Fox News' favorite boogeymen with Ye's enthusiastic participation. Uh, the Clintons, former President Obama, COVID restrictions, and of course the Kardashians. But what the Tucker Carlson team chose to leave out is just as revealing. In the version of the interview that made it to air, Ye described what he said were, was pressure not to support Donald Trump when the latter was a candidate, called the singer Lizzo clinically unhealthy for her weight, which is true. And uh, anyway, talk about what lives matter, so we know about that. Yada, yada. So they... they um, they have some of the stuff that was edited out, and it's mostly, you know, it's mostly just Kanye rambling in relatively incoherent ways. Uh, so here's one example of one of those clips. I'll talk to him if I see him. Yep. But I guarantee you he see me. I have visions that God gives me just over and over on community building and how to build these free energy, kinetic fully kinetic energy communities where we impress, we, we put the least impression on the earth. We're not building the, the new New York skyline fight that we are humble in the way that we present ourselves. We've got to rethink who we are as a species. Okay, so there. That's, that's scandalous stuff there. That was, that was edited out. First of all, the real story here is that someone on the production team, presumably someone on the production team, um, 
someone, you know, I guess it's, 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 we can't know for sure, but someone involved, someone who had access to the raw footage, uh, leaked that raw footage from the Tucker Carlson interview to the left-wing press. So to me, that's the real story. Um, and and because that that doesn't happen. That's like, when's the last time you, that, that you've heard of that happening? And it's the kind of thing you only have to worry about if you're a conservative, because it never happens the other way. But if you're conservative, you always have to worry about some secret leftist on your crew who will just absolutely betray you because he has no ethical standards. Uh, another of the, the uh, if we call it advantages that people have on the left, is it's, it's like no ethical standards, no moral standards at all, just do whatever you want. Uh, I mean, some leftist rat leaked a SCOTUS decision, so obviously there's nothing that they won't do. And what is the bombshell here exactly? That Tucker Carlson cut stuff from the interview because it was off topic or unintelligible or just not relevant? Wow. Amazing. I, I, had no, I didn't know they did that with interviews. I had no idea. A pre-recorded interview, I didn't know that they actually edited it and took stuff out and tried to get it down to a, a reasonable length so that it would go out, so it would go out on air and... Yeah, if there's if there's a if there's a digression into something that's not relevant or interesting or doesn't make sense, that they cut that. I have no idea. This this is amazing. Bombshell, devastating. There are people passing this around yesterday. Of course, leftists, devastating. This is devastating. Devastating for who? No one is surprised by this. This is what, of course. Now, if I'm doing the interview with Kanye and he starts going on about free energy communities or whatever. Which, by the way, that's silly, but that's also what you hear on the left all the time. This is, I mean, they're, they're actually, it's like, they're in Saudi Arabia, they're, they're talking about trying to do something like that. They're building a big community and a giant wall that's going to be whatever. It's going to have no impact on the environment, allegedly. So, but yeah, all that, so I'd cut that out too, because it's just, who cares? That's, that's, no one cares about that. It's irrelevant. It's a tangent. Um, as for Kanye himself, it's, it's not terribly complicated. Okay, really, so the, all the Kanye discourse, I have to confess, I find somewhat annoying. And I, I find it somewhat annoying on all sides. And I'll tell you why. Because Kanye West, is a, he's a brilliant artist. Um, he's brilliant creatively. And there's no doubt about that. But he's not a philosopher, you know, or, or some kind of great um, thinker when it comes to important social issues. I also don't think he's crazy, as people claim. He's going through a psychotic episode. I don't, I don't see that. I don't think that's true either. I think he just kind of rambles. And, and, be, and lots of people ramble. But because he's a rich and famous celebrity, this has also fed his ego. And, uh, and, and that's also that's been part of his brand and his deal for as long as he's been on the scene. His, his, the, the, the show, this immense sort of ego. And um, sometimes in music, it could be kind of funny. And then other times it leads to stuff like this. But so he's got, you know, like, like many rich and famous people. So you got the ego and it's, and, and the ego is fed and he believes that everything he thinks and says is profound and brilliant. And he's been encouraged in that belief by the yes men around him to think that about himself. And so he just keeps babbling about stuff. And much of it is silly and doesn't make a ton of sense. Sometimes it actually is profound. I mean, he's spoken powerfully about the pro-life issue and, when someone says something powerful and true about pro-life issues, there's nothing wrong with the rest of us pointing it out and saying, well, that's powerful and true. Um, he had a line also in that Tucker interview where he said something like, an artist doesn't explain himself, but a leader does. So it's a very simple, interesting line. I, I think it's probably true. Um, something to think about. So Kanye will have moments like that because he's a smart guy from a creative perspective. 
But again, he's not a philosopher. And that's fine, because most of us aren't. The problem is just when we pick through every comment this guy makes, even to the point of going through, sifting through raw footage of an interview for stuff that was taken out, looking for deeper significance, and then elevating him as either a hero or a villain. You know, making him into like uh, you know a, a a philosopher king or Adolf Hitler. Uh, is it is it possible that he's just neither of those things? Like he's a musical artist who's made a lot of interesting music, and he's got a bunch of other opinions about things. And many of those, some of those opinions are I agree with and are interesting. And some of those opinions are totally off the wall. Also, by the way. I, I could tell you this, he, he's definitely not the first musical artist who falls into that category. That would be like all of them who have ever lived. Being kind of eccentric is a, is a common trait among artists. And having opinions and ideas that are objectionable, also common trait among artists. The only difference is that now we live in the social media era and 24-7 cable news and the internet. And so we just like, we're surrounded. If someone is famous for one thing, we have access to their thoughts on everything else. And uh, so that's part of what's happening. here. Speaking of unintelligible, here's MSNBC's report about John Fetterman. This is from MSNBC. So this is them telling us this, which uh, is interesting. Let's watch. We had a monitor set up so that he could read my questions because he still has lingering auditory processing issues as a result of the stroke, which means he has a hard time understanding what he's hearing. Now, once he reads the question, he's able to understand. You'll hear he also still has some uh, problems, some challenges with speech. And I'll say, Katie, that just in some of the small talk prior to uh, the interview before the closed captioning was up and running, it did seem that uh, he had a hard time understanding our our conversations. Uh, so that again is from MSNBC. That is what they are admitting about John Fetterman. He doesn't understand. He's a hard time tracking conversations. He, in order to understand anything, he needs uh, he needs closed captioning. He needs to sit there with a with a computer program just to understand, and he's not able to communicate. And in a, under, under most circumstances, someone who is suffering this way and going through something like this, it would, it would evoke nothing but sympathy and pity. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, you know, people, especially as they get older, they have strokes, this kind of thing happens, terrible thing. Many of us have seen this in our own families. It's just that, it's just that the problem is that he's running for political office and has chosen to, remit, to, to keep running for political office. And there's a very good chance, well, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but there's a very good chance that in Pennsylvania, they will actually choose to elect a senator with brain damage who, who cannot understand basic human conversation. And they're going to put him in Congress. So when that happens, then it becomes, then it's something that we, we, we do have to obviously be critical about. And it's also... It, it makes a lot of the pity and the sympathy evaporate too, because although John Fetterman is uh, having trouble communicating and expressing himself, he still, we would assume, like has a, 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 gr- a grasp on reality and understand what's going on around him. So he is choosing to remain in the race. 
despite knowing that he is not competent for it. Knowing what his, he knows what his limitations are. He obviously knows them. And he chooses to stay in there because he's hungry for power. And who's it, who's it remind you of? It reminds you of Joe Biden. There's another example. In most cases, someone who's going through senility, someone who's, you know, uh, has dementia, Alzheimer's. In most cases, you have nothing but sympathy for that person, obviously. But here, Joe Biden, and he might be at a point now where he really has no idea what's even going on. But um, at least originally, as he was losing his mental faculties, he was aware of that and yet ran for president anyway. Because he cares more about elevating himself and his own power than about the future of the country. So he's willing to harm the country. It harms the country to have someone who's lost their mind in the presidency. And he was willing to do that for his own sake. It also harms the country to have someone like John Fetterman in the Senate. Um, And he's willing to do that because of his own lust for power. All right. We got to skip ahead to this. I haven't even read this, but uh, you, you know it's, it's BS. Here's the USA Today report. Chick-fil-A has the slowest drive through study says. Another chicken chain comes in number one. That's the claim. Uh, it continues, Chick-fil-A has the slowest drive throughs in the country, a new study that tracked the 10 major U.S. fast food chains revealed. At Chick-fil-A, the dreaded drive through wait time is an average of 8 minutes and 29 seconds, which includes time spent waiting in line and then getting your food, according to a report by InTouch Insight, an IT customer service company. Um, KFC, a Chick-fil-A competitor, came in the top spot with an average of five minutes and two seconds. KFC? What? I I ordered something from KFC drive-thru six years ago, and I'm still waiting for it. I still haven't gotten it. KFC has the worst customer service of perhaps any company that has ever existed on the planet. KFC and Burger King maybe are are tied in that regard. Like their employees openly despise you for being there. They will go slower on purpose. On the the rare occasion, if you make the mistake of going in, and and no one hardly ever does go to these places, but if you go into a Burger King or a KFC, they will actually, like when you're walking in, you see the employees moving around and they're not moving around very fast, but they're moving around faster than when you go up and, and place the order. Now they slow down on purpose. You order a bucket of chicken and you sit in line for four and a half hours. And when you get to the window, the guy opens it up and he's stoned out of his mind and he's out of uniform. And still, somehow, though, he's still mad. And then he, he spits in your face and hands you like a, an old shoe with some ketchup on it. And if you say, well, that's not exactly what I ordered, he'll just roll his eyes. And there's nothing you could do because he's also the store manager somehow. That is literally the KFC experience. Literally. Uh, that, that exact thing has happened to me. So how could KFC have the fastest drive through times? Unless you, mean, unless you mean it's faster because there's never anyone in the drive through because KFC sucks and everybody knows it. I bet that is what they mean. So let's continue. Uh, it says, but that doesn't mean the chicken chain sandwich, the chicken sandwich chain, which is closed on Sundays, is completely slow or bad at business. A caveat to the study is that much of the wait time is based on popularity. Right. Chick-fil-A restaurants average 4.74 cars in its drive-thru, which is much higher than the average of 2.76 cars among the 10 chains. If the study were considering quickest average, uh, if it were considering quickest average based on number of cars, Chick-fil-A would uniquely come in first with an average of one minute and 47 seconds in that box. Okay, well, there it is. So the, so the headline is completely bogus. I mean, how, how can you make the headline, Chick-fil-A is the slowest, and then when you read the article, you find out that, no, actually, it's the fastest on average. 
Well, you do that because you're the corporate media and you lie about everything. This is how petty these bastards are. They just lie about everything. You had to lie about this? Even this you had to lie about? You couldn't just be honest? Chick-fil-A has the fastest time on average. That's the headline. That's what, that's all that matters. Uh, but in the corporate media, they also see everything as political. So they have they have to find some way to twist this into anti-Chick-fil-A propaganda. They can't just report on the stupid Chick-fil-A story. They can't j- just do that. They have to find some way to twist it because they see Chick-fil-A as a political enemy. And they still see Chick-fil-A as a political enemy, by the way, even though the Chick-fil-A CEO a couple of years ago uh, I, I believe I have this right. Wasn't he the guy who got on his knee, hands and knees on stage and like washed the feet of a, of a black guy to expiate his white guilt? I'm pretty sure that that happened. And that happens, and yet they still hate Chick-fil-A. So that just shows you what happens when you grovel to the left. So this is actually pretty outrageous. The study finds that Chick-fil-A is the fastest, and the headline says it's the slowest. All right. Uh, but I, I did. I think I pledged that I would stop defending Chick-fil-A ever, ever since that groveling display. So I guess we just have to move on. Uh, here's the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Yoha Pedro Voga says, I love how Matt breaks every hope I have left in humanity and then says, now let's get to our five headlines. That is generally the pattern, I have to admit. Timothy says, Matt makes much stronger anti-pitbull arguments than Knowles did yesterday. Well, I'm a, you know I'm an anti-pitbull guy from way back in the day. I've, I've been in this movement for a while, so uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's part of the issue. I don't, I don't know if maybe Knowles is, is late to, the, uh, late to the, the struggle here. Big Bad Briff says, I work with dogs and I agree with Matt that they are a more risky breed of dog. I've met plenty of great pities over the years and I love those individual dogs. I would hesitate to own one because they have become so overbred and so, and so irresponsibly bred. And that is more risky to own a pit bull now. That's because you can't know what terrible traits have been introduced into their bloodline. Unless you go to a responsible breeder, you can't guarantee that the dog you're getting is of good temperament. It's a much different breed than it was 50 years ago. Pitties were not bred to be aggressive to humans originally. It's sad because they can be wonderful family dogs. The breed has, in my opinion, been irrevocably ruined, though. Uh, yeah, it is unfortunate for the pit bulls. I, I agree. Uh, if in, and, I, and I also don't profess to know all of the ins and outs of the history of pit bulls. Um, really, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a, I'm a basic common sense guy. I'm a simple man in a lot of ways. And so I just look at I look at the information that's around me and I, I draw conclusions that I think are pretty common sense conclusions. And so when I look around and I see that, you know, almost every single time someone is mauled to death, it's a pit bull. Uh, and I look at the statistics, it just it tells me everything I need to know. Uh, and, 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 I am, and I'm also interpreting this information in, in, in the context of my belief that human beings of our in, of, of, are of infinite greater value than dogs. Um, and since I believe that, when I see that there's one breed of dog that poses a unique threat to humans, it's easy for me to say, oh, well, we just shouldn't own these dogs anymore. And if anyone says, well, what about the poor pit bulls? Like, I, I don't care. I mean, I, I care more about the people. I, that's it. I, it you know, so if we, if we say you can't own pit bulls anymore, um, it, it, this, this is one case where it, it actually applies that, uh, and, and sometimes this logic doesn't work, but when it comes to dogs and the threat that they pose, in this case, I could say that if 
saying you can't own pit bulls anymore saves one more kid from getting mauled to death, then I think it was well worth it. It's not even close in my mind. Um, Brad Benfield says, I love Matt, but his argument against pit bulls is completely based on ignorance and fear. The irresponsible owners are the ones with pit bulls that hurt others. I have raised pit bulls for many years and have had almost have had almost 100 pit bulls. 100? All shapes, colors, and sizes, and none of my dogs ever bit anyone or any other dog to the point of hurting them permanently. Well, that's, that was quite a qualifier at the end. To the None of them have ever bit anyone to the point of hurting them permanently. So you've got two qualifiers. None of them ever bit anyone to the point of hurting them permanently. Uh, <laughs> how many of them have bit people, though, is my question. Of the hundred. That's actually an interesting case study. So you are claiming that none of them have ever permanently hurt somebody. How many of them have hurt people, though? Of the 100. I, I, you, know, you tell me. Um, they are still strong and powerful animals. And like all animals, they have animalistic instincts when provoked. Irresponsible owners are the only reason Matt is so scared of pit bulls. Um, I, again, my, it's, it's not that me, per, I don't walk around in, in, in terror of pit bulls. Now, if I had a rabid pit bull running at me, I think I would be uh, a little bit disturbed by that. But my fear is mostly for kids that get mauled and you know elderly people. Those are most of the people that, not, not only, but it's mostly people who are especially vulnerable who end up uh, dying from these attacks. So that's where my fear comes in. And, you know, I already addressed this uh, irresponsible owner thing. But just to reiterate, um, I, I don't think it's true that all the pit bull attacks can be explained by, quote, bad owners. I think it's just something that is said. I don't, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence for that. And you also have to explain what you mean by bad owner, irresponsible owner. But also, even if that is true. That, do, that doesn't change anything as far as I'm concerned. Because a lot of owners are going to be irresponsible. That's just the reality. It's like the analogy I gave yesterday. Rather than, you know, rather than comparing pit bulls to guns or inanimate objects, that, that comparison doesn't work. I, I think if you want to make analogies, the analogy would be with other kinds of animals. And so there are many other kinds of animals that you're not allowed to own. You're especially not allowed to own in communities uh, and in neighborhoods because of the danger that they pose, even though with many of those other sorts of animals, if you're a very good and responsible owner, you can probably make those animals a lot less dangerous. But the point is, I don't want to have to trust that you are one of those expert owners. I shouldn't have to trust that. If you're telling me you have to be an expert and super responsible, or this beast will will eat someone's face, uh, well, then I'm going to say, well, then no one should own that animal in a community because it's just the reality that most people are not going to be experts and responsible. All right. Um, K. Rule C says, the trans dude in the beginning looks a lot like that troublesome trans dude that gave a sonic worker a hard time in that viral clip. This is a very good catch. I didn't notice this. Now, now so we, we played yesterday the uh, ABC Houston affiliate news report about my speech at the University of Houston, which is coming up tomorrow, and they're planning protests, and Antifa's going to show up, and they interviewed some uh, people on campus who were upset about this. They also interviewed a quote-unquote trans woman, uh, which, in other words, a male, who's complaining about this. And I remember watching that clip, and I'm, and I'm thinking, like, this person looks familiar, but I don't know from what. And this is it. So this is, we'll play this clip again, just to remind you. This is from uh, several months ago. You have this person who goes by Eden Torres, I think now, going to Sonic and just looking to pick a fight 
with the sonic manager who's just trying to mind his own business and do his job. Let's watch this again. Why does it matter? Oh, it doesn't matter to you. I'm so, I mean, but to me, I'm a male. Okay? Okay. So, what are you? So I can call you a sir or a ma'am. What are you? What would you assume looking at me? What are you? What would you assume looking at me? I assume that you're a man. Okay? Okay? Thank you. Whatever. I love that clip. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, uh, I, I love that clip because it's just, you know, what would you assume based on looking at me? And the guy's like, uh, you're a man? That's what I would assume. You asked you ask me the question. It's a great This Sonic manager, and, and uh, this guy, he's like, he's, he's, he doesn't feel like dealing with this. He's not even trying to stand on some, he's not trying to make some principled stand. He's not interested in doing that. He's just trying to get through the day. And, uh, and, and he's, he deals with enough, with enough a-holes and scumbags like this. So he even says, I'll call you whatever you want me to call you, but you got to tell me what you want me to call you because I don't know. I don't know what you want. But if you ask me, what do you look like? You look, And then he flips the camera around because we're supposed to see what he looks like and say, well, how could you think that that person's a man? And it's like, no, yeah, that looks like a man with a wig on. That's what it looks like. And you asked, don't ask if you don't want the answer to the question. Is one, one of the, you know, one of the, one of the truths of life, one of the Rules of thumb you should always carry with you and keep in mind is don't ask questions you don't want an answer to. Tried to get the Sonic manager fired over that, and I think unsuccessfully. So that's the happy ending there. Anyway, that's the person that was uh, is going to be involved in protesting my speech. And I would like to invite Eden Torres um, to the speech. You know, rather than standing outside and protesting. I want to invite you to come in, sit down, watch the film, you know, listen to the speech. You can ask a question in the Q&A. Back in June of 2020, Candace Owens took to social media to question the narrative about George Floyd and took a barrage of insults. As a result, celebrities insulted her, GoFundMe deplatformed her. As the attacks ramped up, Daily Wire Plus gave her a platform to speak out without fear of being silenced and supported her investigation into Black Lives Matter. That organization raised $80 million through fundraising, but um, no one ever asked where the money went until now. Tonight, Candace Owens will reveal the truth in her new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. Because of our members, we're able to create a thriving alternative platform and pursue the truth wherever it leads. Daily Wire Plus members defeated the vaccine mandates in the Supreme Court. Daily Wire Plus members helped us uncover the Loudoun County sexual assault cover-up. Daily Wire Plus members empowered me to expose Vanderbilt's practice of mutilating children in the name of gender-affirming care. And just over the weekend, Daily Wire Plus members caused PayPal to backtrack on its Orwellian fines for misinformation. So there's a lot going on. We're doing a lot. You're doing a lot. Together, we're doing a lot. Remember, we are speaking for you and fighting for your values, too. Free speech is our greatest weapon. And with the left's iron grip on the culture and the mainstream media, Somebody has to step up and fill the void. So if you're not yet a member, go to dailywire.com slash Walsh to subscribe and join us today and make sure you're joined so that tonight, you don't want to miss it, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, you're going to be able to watch Candace Owens' new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So today is the rare but not unprecedented occasion where a comment 
um, interests slash maybe annoys me enough to migrate from the comment section into the daily cancellation. A few days ago during this segment, we discussed the overall failure of Christian leaders in this country to make any serious inroads into the culture and their nearly perfect record of losing every major cultural fight for the past many decades. As we discussed, uh, some leaders prefer to stand off at a distance, sort of sneering at those of us in the trenches and telling us how we might do a better and holier job of fighting the battles that they refuse to fight or have already surrendered. So really, the whole cancellation segment was just uh, my pale imitation of Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena speech, I suppose. Um, you can go and listen to that or read that, and uh, you just, it's much better, much more eloquently put. The... The segment generated a lot of feedback, some of it agreeing with my commentary, some of it critical, and, and that's all fine. This comment, however, falls right in line with the sort of thing we hear from Christians and Christian leaders frequently. Um, it is a sermon about the need to love our enemies. We've talked about this a little bit on the show, kind of glancingly, and I want to get into it in more detail now. But the sermon, as always, when we hear about it, well, you need to love your enemies. You're not loving enough. It's, it's incomplete and lacking the necessary context. But I'll read the comment because it kind of sets us up for this conversation, I think, in a, uh, very nicely. So here's the comment from Casey Stewart. It says, Walsh's critique of Cooper and others like him is well taken, at least in large part. But where Cooper goes wrong is in saying that the problem with Walsh is that he is political. That's not it. The problem with Walsh is that he does not love his enemies. He literally admits to hating them. And that taints his entire project. It also makes things more difficult for those of us who are really in the trenches. I'm an elder in a Bible church in the Portland area, taking a solid pastoral stand for Christ on these and other issues. I, too, appreciate the work Walsh and the DW are doing, and I am not calling for them to stop or to try to add Christian theology to their public efforts. In fact, it would be better if they would talk about God less. Then it might be easier for people to hear me when I say I totally agree with Walsh about this, but from an entirely different angle. That is true, of course, but it's hard for people to see because Walsh's quasi-attachment of his religion to his political work, which he does do, implies that he and Jesus are on the same page on this, and they aren't. My message to sexually confused or gender-confused people is... I would die for you, but I cannot lie for you. That's not the message of Matt Walsh or the Daily Wire. Admittedly, if it were, they would not have the massive cultural footprint that they do. I get that, but it's not a, it is not a cowardly shrinking from the issues to choose to follow Jesus in the real trenches of pastoral work rather than to use a media kingdom to launch culture war salvos. If or when Walsh goes to jail over this, it'll be a media circus. When I do, probably not if. It won't have any of the flashy media stuff about it, but God willing, Will be a truly it will be truly honoring to my Lord Jesus. Um, okay, but first of all, you're, you're you're probably correct that if I ever go to jail, it'll be a media circus. Uh, at least in conservative media, probably the liberal media would ignore it, and I would hope at least on the Daily Wire. Like I, I hope it would make it if me going to federal prison would make it above the, the fold in the Daily Wire. I could probably trust that at least. Um, so you're right about that. And, 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 you could, and that does give me a certain advantage, a certain visibility that people who are, as you say, in the trenches and don't have the platform don't have. And I acknowledge that all the time. You know, it's, 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 it's a lot harder when you don't have—I have advantages with this kind of visibility and uh, leverage. And I try to use the leverage not just for my own benefit, but for um, the benefit of, of, you know, these issues that we're fighting on. Uh, but it's, it's also true that, you know, if anyone ever makes good on their threat to kill me, um, that might be a media circus too, but that's not going to do me a lot of good because I'm going to be just as dead. But in any case, you're throwing around words like love and hate in the way that Christians in our culture often throw them around. Use them without explaining what you mean by them. And you use them, at least, at least you've used them here, it seems to me, as a means to elevate yourself above others. So you say, you don't love your enemies like Jesus did. I do. I would die for my enemies. 
That's what you declare. Is that what loving your enemies means, though? That you have to die for them? Because if it does, nobody walking this earth can actually say for sure that they love their enemies because you simply cannot know that you would really die for them unless put in that position, which you almost certainly never will be. And that makes your statement seem like empty self-aggrandizement. As for me, I'm, I'm happy to admit that in many conceivable scenarios, I would not die for my enemies. I mean, I, I would not, for example, let's just say, throw myself in front of a bullet or a speeding train to save someone who advocates or perpetrates the castration and mutilation of children. That doesn't mean that I wish death on them. I don't. And it doesn't mean that I'd be the one firing the bullet. I, of course, wouldn't. It simply means that I would not leave my own kids fatherless in order to martyr myself for someone who harms children. Indeed, I would be sacrificing my life in order to leave my own children more vulnerable to the predations of the very person I have saved. Now, you might call that brave. I would call it reckless and irresponsible. It's also not a requirement of loving our enemies, nor does failing to martyr yourself for someone mean that you hate them. There may be some, you know, there could be some scenarios where I would put myself in harm's way for those I consider an enemy. I'm not saying it's, that that wouldn't happen ever. It's, it's possible that you could dream up something like that. All of this is a useless game of hypothetical, however, which is what the love your enemy stuff often turns into. It just turns into hypothetical. It doesn't really mean anything. No one explains what they mean by that. What about hatred? Well, I have never advocated hating your enemies as a principle. I have admitted that I struggle not to hate those who inflict unimaginable cruelties on children. But my struggle in that regard stems from the love I have for the victims. I, I would suggest that if you cannot relate at all to that difficulty, then it's because you do not love the victims enough. And yet I'm at fault in this too, because in this confusion, I'm also at fault because when I say struggle not to hate, I don't really mean hate. I mean something more like struggle not to be totally overcome and blind with rage. That's more what I mean. That temptation may be a problem in its own right. It is, but it's not the same thing as hatred. So here's the part where we should probably get around to defining our terms. In the immortal words of, of whoever wrote that 90s song, what is love? And that person argued that love simply means that, baby, you don't hurt me. Yet that is a negative vision of love. Aquinas had a positive vision. He said that love is to will the good of the other. It means that you want what is best for someone, and you will actively work to help them accomplish that. What is good? What is best for them? So what is hatred then? Well, to hate someone, it follows, is to will the bad for them. Does that mean that you, you hate someone if you want them to be punished, if you want them to reap the consequences of their actions, if you want them to suffer for what they've done, if you use harsh language about them, if you make them feel bad? No, that's not necessarily hatred at all, because suffering and, and punishment are not bad when they are deserved. They're actually good in that case. They are good for society, and they are good for the person suffering. A desire for evil to be punished is born out of an impulse towards justice, not hatred. That's the crucial fact that many Christian churches get wrong, or at least don't spend enough time explaining. There is nothing wrong with wanting justice. In fact, there is something very wrong with not wanting it enough. And I think that's the real flaw in many Christians today. An encounter with injustice should provoke within you a deep desire for the injustice to be righted, for it to be corrected, which means correcting those who inflict it. Now, I know it sounds scandalous to the modern Christian ear to hear me say that we as Christians can even desire suffering for others, but there is no justice without suffering. If you want a killer to go to prison, you want him to suffer because prison is suffering. That's what it is. It's part of the point of it. Of course you want that for his own sake and for society's sake. 
for justice. I mean, even something like putting your child in timeout for hitting his sister is inflicting suffering. It's a very, very, very small amount of it for a very, very small infraction, but he will suffer in a very small degree because if he's not phased at all by the punishment, then there's no point in it. Indeed, you can actively kill somebody without hating them. Somebody comes into your house in the middle of the night, uh, comes into my house in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm going to blow his brains out of his head. And it will be an act of love, love for my family, love for my children. As for the dead man, he got what was due to him. He reaped the consequences of his actions. He got justice, whether he liked it or not. And we can assume that he did not. So if you can cause someone to suffer, if you can punish them, if you can even kill them in some cases without hating them, then what does hatred mean? Hatred must be a desire for a person's ultimate ill. It is to prefer that they be damned than redeemed. It is to wish that they remain evil so that they could be condemned for it. It is to want them to remain in sin. I don't know what hatred is if it's not that. And there's a lot of that kind of hatred in this culture. There's a lot of wanting people to remain in sin, encouraging it even. Now, I know this is a word, hatred, that gets used by Christians very often to condemn those who are too harsh, too militant, too aggressive. But again, they never explain what they mean. Here I am attempting an explanation. And I cannot see that hatred means anything but desiring a person's ultimate, final, spiritual destruction. If that's what it means, that I could say for certain that I do not hate anyone because I want every one of my enemies to see the error in their ways and repent. I want them all to this very day. I want them this moment to have a change of heart and abandon their ways. I want every single person who harms children, who abuses and mutilates them to see themselves for the monsters they've become and turn away from it. That's what I want very much. So yes, I love my enemies. I don't want them to be my enemies. I want them to stop inflicting evil on the world and on the innocent. But as long as they're doing such things, I believe we are called as Christians to oppose them relentlessly, aggressively, even angrily at times. We should react to them and their deeds in a way that is fitting and proportional. We should act with urgency. We should respond to heinous evil and barbarism in a manner that communicates just how heinous and barbaric it is. This is where Christians are largely failing, I think. We don't have much of a problem of Christians hating evildoers too much, or at all. The real problem in our culture, and what has put us in the hole that we're in, is that too many Christians fail to love virtue and goodness enough and hate evil enough. Um, they're not passionate about enough about protecting the innocent. Indifference, apathy, moral cowardice. These are our most prominent flaws, I would say. These are the poisons in the bloodstream of the church in the West. That's how I see it. And because I have to cancel something in order to make this whole rant fit into the segment that I've chosen it for, uh, I suppose they are the things that I am canceling today. And that'll do it for this segment of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.